All right, well, you are invited to go with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 15. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 15. If you've been with us for any length of time, you will know that we have been preaching through the lectionary Gospel readings uh, this year. And, uh, and so Matthew is our Gospel, right? So year A, which is what we're in, is Matthew, B, Mark, C, Luke. And so I love preaching through the lectionary. Uh, and that's just an organized way of reading the Bible publicly. Okay, that's what lectionary really is talking about. Here's why: is because we come to passages like we have today. All right, and a lot of a lot of preachers want to skip over these because these are difficult. All right, this one is is a tough one. All right, this is one that's not easy to preach, and it really kind of strikes us, and maybe even puts a little bad taste in our mouth. And maybe even toward Jesus and his treatment of this woman. So let's just jump in if you don't know what I'm talking about. And you will see now. Notice these words here found in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 15. Go to verse 21. Jesus, this is the NRSV. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me. Oh, yeah, uh, thank you. Let's all stand. Jim. I was like, why is Jim standing? Uh, Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Yes. Thank you, Jim. See, that's why we need each other, right? I don't don't remember everything, (laughs) obviously. Notice this. She says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, term there is worshipped, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And now, Lord, we need your help to both interpret and apply your word to us and to live into what you have for us today and what you're calling us to. We pray that you would help us do just that in this moment. In your name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, it sounds like... (laughs) in the fact that Jesus goes away, and this story occurs twice, once here in Matthew and once in Mark. It sounds as if Jesus goes away from people. He's withdrawing once again, which is not unusual for him. He withdraws and typically either goes and prays to the Father. Here it almost seems like a vacation because he moves up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is by the beach. Uh, it's near the, it's right on the Mediterranean, and it's beautiful there, right? 
I mean, people still vacation in these areas, even to this day, to go see the beaches of the Mediterranean, right? Or what the Romans called the Great Sea, right? And so, because Rome surrounded the Great Sea, you know. And here, they, here Jesus is retreating, as if it were, or maybe we could think of it as we do, vacationing at the beach, right? And many have proposed that, yeah, what's happening here? is Jesus on vacation with the disciples, with his friends, and, and this woman comes and is asking him to work. And, and he's trying to retreat. He's trying to stay hidden. Mark actually tells us this. He was trying to stay hidden. And instead, she's exposing, you know, hey, back to work, buddy, you know, when he's actually trying to relax. Has anybody ever had this happen before? Like, you, you wanted to relax, or, or maybe, I can tell you this, if you have kids, 100% you've had this happen, right? You go to vacation, you think in your head, this is going to be great. I'm going to get, mama, daddy, right? Anybody? No? Okay. Yes, I got an amen. There you go. So we can move on, right? We've all been interrupted from our rest, our respite our designated time to withdraw. As soon as you get in the recliner and you pull the lever, here comes the phone call, right? Well, Jesus is maybe experiencing something like this here. Certainly it indicates that he did want to get away. Uh, and he is at the beach, so that's nice. But is he ignoring her when he doesn't answer? Because that seems problematic, doesn't it? I mean, the way this story has often been preached, by the way, through the, uh, at least in modern times, is that Jesus is ignoring her, right? Because he, he actually doesn't want to deal with this. Um, and, you know, like you would ignore a kid, right? <laughs> How many of us as parents have ignored that call for mama or for daddy, right? Or at least we make them say it 45 times before we respond. Yeah, anybody? <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, well, it, you know, so that's what... It's almost as if Jesus has a closed sign in his response to this woman. Like, no, 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 we're not working today. Like, of all days, not today. Let me just enjoy this view. And add more to this, the disciples seem annoyed, don't they? She's coming after them shouting, you know, hey, can get the master to respond to me. Get, and, and, hey, Jesus, please send this woman away like so we can... Enjoy this view. I mean, haven't you seen the view? She's obstructing the nice, relaxing view, maybe. And then Jesus, when he does respond, builds a case against helping her, doesn't he? He says as much. I only came for the lost sheep of Israel. Like, what do I have to do with this situation? You're not one of the Israelites, therefore, I'm not here to help you. What are you talking about? Why would you ask me? Right? And then finally... <clears throat> Maybe even, and this has been preached this way, maybe even calls her racially charged names, such as dogs, right? She says, he says, uh, why would we feed the children's food to the dogs, right? And dog was a, was a typical way that Jews would address Gentiles. They were the dogs, right? And, and it became, for Jews, almost a derogatory term. So... This is a difficult passage, as I uh, iterated a moment ago to you. Um, but I love these kind of passages, because when I come to them, I'm thinking, okay, something is below the surface, right? It looks like this, but I know that this is here 
for a reason and not a racist reason, not a we get to ignore people when we're on vacation reason. No, there's got to be something more here. In other words, our hermeneutic, which is our way of interpreting, okay, must always look at what comes before this hard-to-do story and what comes after it and what comes around it, which is called context, right? We want to see this in context, not just eisegete it, which is to say, me read what I think it means in there. Because, you know, we even use that, like, those sorry dogs, right? We say that. So, so for us to hear somebody being called a dog, that's highly offensive. You know, I mean, that's it's like, what in the world is going on here? And so what is going on here and how might we interpret it? And, and here's the other thing. With hard passages, let's not just explain it all away. That's the other. We want to feel the impact of this story. It's meant to make us stop in our tracks. You know, you're doing a Bible, 90-day Bible reading thing. What? What? <laughs> By the way, um, in the 90-day Bible reading, if you read Bible cover to cover, there's going to be some R-rated scenes. Just, just beware, right? You're going to have to help the kids understand, hey, that's a little... Pe- Parental advice, uh, what do they call it? Parental guidance is advised, right? So there's some of that. This is not an R-rated scene, but this is a difficult one, isn't it? And we're meant to feel that. We're meant to feel the punch of that. We're almost meant to stop and try to reread it, right? Like, hang on, whoa, surely I missed something. And it is, truly, when we come to hard passages, this is just kind of a hermeneutic again, we got to keep reading it and rereading it to make sure we're hearing what is being said. Now, there's also two fundamental assumptions as Christians that we have to always make in any passage that we come to that we don't understand. Number one, Jesus is always going to be sinless. And to ignore someone because you're on vacation wanting to enjoy the view is a sin. Can we say that? That's a sin. And to call someone racially charged names or animalistic names to demean them, that's a sin. So, is Jesus sinning here? No. Then that's our fundamental starting place. He is sinless. And he is not the one who needs correction, but we. He is not the one who needs correction, but the disciples. So we've got to get that part right. I was literally, I I, I even called Jackson over last night, late, as I was listening to this lady preach online about this passage. And she, did she not, Jackson? She straight up said, this is Jesus being racial because this is how he grew up. And this woman corrects him. And he opens his mind to this correction, which then leads to the gospel going to the Gentiles. Jesus, I, I was nervous listening to her. That's blasphemous. For us to think two things, that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, or the Bible is not true and doesn't deal with our reality, that somehow it doesn't really know about sexuality today. Because it couldn't have known about this situation or that situation, hogwash. God knows all things, and he knows all of our nastiness, and he always has. And the Bible is going to be right and correct us, never us correcting the Bible. Never us 
correcting the Son of God himself, blessed be his name. This is not a correction of Jesus in this passage. We're misreading it if we think that's the case. Let's settle that matter up front. (laughs) Jesus is not being racial. He's not misunderstanding the cues of his time. No, he's teaching. Notice what happens here. The first thing to take note of is this. He never says no to the woman. So it's not, Lord, have mercy on me. No. That would have been definitive, wouldn't it? Can we go ahead and say this? Silence isn't no. One of the things that God wants to develop in us virtuously, not virtually, (laughs) virtuously, you know, virtue, meaning grit and and who we are character-wise, is persistence, faithfulness. One of the key words, uh, somebody mentioned it in prayer, hesed, love, right? Hesed love is the kind of faithful love that God has in the Old Testament. The term there is covenantal faithful love. Faithfulness most describes God. Does this woman sound pretty faithful to you? Oh, man, she knows what she needs to have happen. And you know what else? She knows who this is. She's not like the disciples and still are a little wishy-washy on who this is. She knows who he is. And she's going to persist like the persistent widow. You remember her? Another persistent woman using her persistence to get what she needs to have happen, which is not even for herself per se. It's for her daughter who's demon-possessed. You might say, well, goodness, you know, demon-possessed, like we don't have that anymore. Go, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Then we're disagreeing with Jesus on the demonic because when he comes around, the demonic comes to light. Why? Because they like to hide in darkness. They like to hide in the darkness. And when the light comes around, they, they can't stand the light. So they have to come out when he's around. We can't pick up on that. We're not Jesus, so they're not just always jumping out. They're always jumping out to him because when the light comes around, they cannot stand the light. And the light comes from his word, the word with a capital W, the logos, the word and reason of God, who is Jesus Christ. So he is not saying no here. In other words, we we automatically think silence equals no. But how many times have our prayers not been immediately answered? And it wasn't a no. It was meant to help us persist in prayer. And doesn't Jesus even teach this? He teaches persistence in prayer. In other words, the woman who persisted, she was the one who received mercy from the unjust judge. And he turns around and says this, How much more your heavenly Father... How much more does he want to give us good gifts? He's not an unjust judge. He's a good judge and good father. So we must persist in our asking, in our praying. It's meant to build faithfulness in us. Jesus never says no. You know, forgive me for this, and and if it offends anybody, I'm I'm really sorry, but it reminded me of um, Dumb and Dumber, the movie. You you remember this? (laughs) where he says to the lady that he's in love with, right? He's like, he's like, what are my chances? Just, just be straight with me. What are my chances here? You know? And she's like, it's not good. And he's like, one in a hundred? And she's like, 
more like one in a million. And he goes, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> yes! You know, um, <clears throat> if we don't hear a no and there's just silence, you're telling me there's a chance. I'm going to keep going until I hear no from God. Does this make sense? Until we hear a definitive no or a definitive yes. And this is meant to build the kind of character that God himself has. It is who he is. He won't stop coming. Isn't that right? That's the scene in the Bible. He just keeps coming. And, and when Israel turns away from him, he just comes to him again. And you're thinking, how embarrassing a God that is, that is falling over himself to redeem Israel when they just want to be with other lovers. That's literally the way it's talked about in Hosea. And he just keeps coming after us. Persistence. Faithfulness. Silence doesn't mean no. So when there's just silence when you're praying, keep going, dear brothers and sisters. I've gone long periods in my life where, where I did not hear from God on a matter. And you know what? I wondered, okay, I guess he gave up on that. He was seeing if I was going to give up. You see, in this story, like in the story of Abraham, it's not so that God knows Abraham's faith. It's so that Abraham knows Abraham's faith. Because at the beginning of the story, because, you know, again, when you come to these texts that you're thinking, surely this can't be right. Like, Jesus surely can't be ignoring this woman, right? Like, come on. When God tells Abraham, go kill your son, you're thinking to yourself, surely. Like, really? You're kind of looking around. There's got to be a way out, right? And there is. Because at the beginning of the story, it says, God tested Abraham. So we're tipped off that this is a test. And here, I think you can say safely, this also is a test. Not just for the woman for the disciples. How are they going to respond, right? <laughs> Which um, is always kind of funny to look at the disciples' response, isn't it? Let's just be honest, you know. Because there's kind of our response, isn't it? And, and, and many, have, many have seen the disciples' response as, oh, this annoying woman, she just won't leave us alone. We're trying to vacation. I mean, we got sea dews at 3 o'clock today, you know? Right? We're supposed to be out on the Mediterranean, you know? And, and can you just send her away? And it's one way to look at it that they have that she's annoyed them. I, I think that's probably right. But here's the thing that I don't think we see, and I think it's true, is they knew what Jesus was going to do. They knew that even in his silence at this point, he was going to do something. They knew something was afoot, right? They knew something, because they, they've already seen. You, you can't read the Gospels out there. Oh, look at there. Look what he did there. Right? You can't read the Gospels without seeing the unique ways that he approaches people, even heals people. It's never the same. It's always personal. And so I bet they were thinking, just get it over with, man. I know you're trying to teach us like a lesson or something, but come on. You ever had that happen before, by the way? You ask somebody a question, and then they give you a story, and you're thinking, just tell me the answer, Right? Well, according to Socrates, the father of all philosophy, the best way to learn is by you figuring it out, not me telling you. That's the Socratic method, right? 
And it's the method that Jesus picks up and uses. He doesn't just tell people all the answers. He wants you to find your way there. How much do you really want this answer? What are you willing to do to seek after this answer? Because, you know, some of us, we ask these big questions, but we really don't want to know. That's casting your pearls before swine. In other words, you have this beautiful truth, but we're not just to give it to somebody that actually doesn't want to know. They will do something bad with that information. No, we're supposed to give it to those who seek. Right? The ones who find are those who seek. The one he opens the door to are the ones who are knocking. And their knocking is persistent. No, I think the disciples knew exactly what Jesus was going to do. He was going to do it, but he was going to do it in this unique way that was going to surprise everybody. Just get it over with. See dudes at three, right? That's my thought in here. I think that's exactly because you can't even read the Old Testament without God being like that too. You remember Jonah, like the worst prophet ever? You know, the worst pastor prophet dude ever? It's like, Go tell the Ninevites, which they were nasty people, remember? I mean, they were terrorists, essentially, in their own day. He says, go tell the Ninevites that I love them. He says, no, not going to do that. Why? Because he knew that God was a dirty forgiver. That's why. He knew that God would forgive them, and he hated those people. He didn't want them to have access to God's grace. He did not want them to know that there was a God in heaven who loves all people. Not just some, all people, even the bad ones. And so, like Jonah, I think they knew exactly what God was going to do here in Jesus Christ. And they wanted to just hurry up and do it. <laughs> let's go. Let's get it on, man. Yeah, I know you're going to do this. Furthermore, he isn't demeaning the woman but instead evoking her on to great faith. In other words, when he calls her, so to speak, this name, which, by the way, he actually never calls her this name. That's the other trick here. (laughs) He never calls her a dog. He just simply says a general statement, which was true of Israel I have to feed the children, not the dogs. And that, that's basically how Israel saw themselves as the children of God, right? They're the elect of God. And the dogs then come and eat the leftovers. In other words, what falls off of the table or overflows from the table. Now, if you have a dog, you understand exactly how this means. And unfortunately, we have a dog, Gabby. And 100%, when we're eating, guess where she's at? She ain't in the bedroom. She's not wanting to go outside. Instead, she is right there at the table waiting for any morsel of anything to fall from that table, and she's going to lap it up like a vacuum. The dogs here also is not the term in Greek for like a wild dog. Instead, it's puppy. So it's like basically the puppies are the ones who always are yapping up stuff off of off the table. But the children had to be fed first. And of course, even in Paul's ministry, right, he always would go to the Jews first, be rejected, and then go to the Gentiles, wouldn't he? So this pattern is set up 
already. So he's just making a general statement really concerning, uh, concerning the dogs here. Okay, But he never calls her a dog. That's important. All right. Now, also, we could say this even further. And that is, God uses all kind of animal names sometimes to address us, doesn't he? Sheep is a, is a very familiar one, right? We are the sheep of his pasture, right? That's literally what God says to us. Okay? And in Psalm 23, one of the greatest, you know, probably the uh, most important, well-known poem in all of the world uh, is talking about us being sheep. But notice this. Look at it yourself there in the text. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So if there's anything derogatory here at all, and not in a, in a racist way or anything like that, but if there's anything negative here, it's actually toward the Israelites. He doesn't say the found sheep of Israel to my precious chosen ones. No, he's saying, no, to these knuckleheads that are lost. And if we read right before this, you know who the knuckleheads are. They're the Pharisees as always. They actually, they're in a scuffle in the beginning of 15 about the tradition of the elders. And Jesus corrects them and his disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, uh, the, disciples, um, uh, the Pharisees are not happy about what you said. He said, that's okay, because they are blind. And when the blind leads the blind, you fall into a pit. So he's already in this discussion, and if there's any negativity toward anybody, it's not the dogs, the Gentiles. It's actually the lost sheep of Israel. That's why we kind of even talk about, like, dumb sheep, right? And we've talked about that before, even in here. But it doesn't always have to be dumb sheep. In other words, just because he puts that title on us as sheep of his pasture, and he's the shepherd of the sheep, doesn't mean it's always negative. Neither with dogs. People like puppies, right? Who doesn't like a puppy? So if he's using the term for puppy or whelp, you know, here, then it's, it's going to be something positive, actually. So, so we need to get the negativity out of our head. It's a general statement about Jews and Gentiles. It's exactly what it is. Now, <clears throat> the Canaanite woman's great faith, because this is what Jesus himself says, doesn't he, at the end? Look at this great faith that she has. Well, she's a Syrophoenician woman, we learn in Mark, but, or just put simply here, Canaanite. And you remember, the Canaanites are not on good terms with the Jews, right? Like, the, remember, the Canaanites are the ones who, who have to leave their land and the Jews are the ones who come into the land in Joshua because of the Canaanites' um, immoral, primarily sexual immoral and idolatrous behavior. Uh, and, and by the way, it's not like God just all of a sudden determines, all right, these guys got to go. It was about 500 years of trying to get them to the right place that finally he has to move them out. So 500 years of grace, then judgment. That's why I always like to say, you know, and you've heard me say this before, but God has a judge meter you know? He can take a lot. But when the judgment cup gets full and he pours it out, it's a whole thing. We don't ever want to get there. And it reminds me again of Nineveh. Nineveh turned to God and they were not Jewish. Right? So this whole 
Jew and Gentile thing is not God saying, these are my favorite people and to hell with everybody else. That's not the way this is happening. Instead, it's God chose the Jews to be a light to the nations. They were to be priests to the world. In other words, a priest, remember, goes for the people to God and to God for the people, right? So there's a two-way street here. They're dealing with God on one hand and the people on the other. Israel was called to do that. They were called to be the place that shared what they had. In other words, God had given them the promises, given them the covenants. He had blessed them. Remember, that was the promise to Abraham. I will bless you. Why? So that you will be a blessing. Not so you can say, oh, thanks. You know, now we're so special and it's just mine, all mine, right? No. No, we don't want to be Smeagol or Gollum. Instead, the opposite of that, we want to share. We must share. It is meant to be shared. Now, notice the names that she calls Jesus. Lord, that term kurios in the Greek, which has to do with authority. Caesar was the Lord for everybody else, but not for Christians. Instead, Jesus is Lord. That's the most fundamental sort of confession we can make is Jesus is Lord. So she says, Lord. And remember, she has not been given the promises and she's not the elect people. She's not the Israelites, etc. And yet she knows this. It reminds me of Ruth, right? Who's a Moabite, remember? And yet she bumps into Israel. She marries a son who is Jewish of Naomi. And because of that, she bumps into Judaism or the Jewish faith, our faith, faith in Yahweh. And you remember what she, Naomi, when her sons die, tells the two girls, says, y'all need to go back home. Like, there is nothing for you here. And what does is, what is Ruth famously, beautifully say, right? No, no, your God is going to be my God. Where you go, I go. In other words, she converted to worshiping the true and living God. Somehow, this lady knows the truth, and she's not even Jewish. In fact, she's Canaanite. She says, Lord, and then says, Son of David, which is a messianic title, isn't it? The Son of David was the Messiah. Okay? So, so this messianic title she gives to Jesus, Son of David. And you remember, I love this in the Gospels, because this is the way God always is doing things. The blind people... In the gospel are saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And yet the people who can actually see don't know that he is the son of David. So the people who say they can see are blind. And the people who know they can't see well are the ones who can see. She then says, and by the way, she says, have mercy on me. But it's her daughter who's demon-possessed, right? But this is her embodying her daughter's pain and her daughter's situation so much that it's have mercy on me. This is intercession. She's coming to Jesus, interceding on behalf, not of herself, but of another. And you know what? I think in the Christian life, 
We have to have somebody week in and week out that we are interceding for. If all your prayers are just about God blessing you, help me, you know, bless me, help me have better finances and better health and, all, and never anybody else. When she says, Lord, have mercy on me, she's meaning for her daughter's sake. This is not a prayer about herself, some selfish prayer. Brothers and sisters, we're called to intercede, aren't we? Absolutely. This is what Jesus himself does from his throne in heaven. Is he intercedes for you, for me, and for the whole world. And so should we. And I'll tell you something. When you start praying for somebody, you start thinking about them. And when you start thinking about them, you try to figure out ways to help them. And when you help them, you're in action then. So that prayer becomes action. She says finally to him, after persisting, (laughs) Lord, help me. She comes before him, and the text says she worships him, which means she bowed down to him. So not only is she confessing with her, notice this, not only is she confessing with her mouth, son of David, meaning he's the Messiah, he is Christ, he is God in the flesh. But instead, or further, she, she goes and kneels and worships him and then says, Lord, have mercy. Or, sorry, help me. Lord, help me. And what a, what a prayer from the heart. It's almost like the guy who, remember the, the, uh, the, um, the publican and the Pharisee? Pharisee has this long, drawn-out, theologically accurate prayer. And the other guy bows his head because he can't even look up, beats his chest, says, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus says, who do you think got mercy that day? Oh, it was the guy who just beat his chest and prayed from the heart. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. How many of us know that we need his help? Sometimes he has to remind us just how much we need his help. We're like little kids who who all of a sudden think they can do it on their own, you know? I mean, in in having five kids, we see all the various stages, right? And it's like, you remember when they're eating, you know, and they're learning to eat? It's just all over the place, right? And then they're like, no, I can do it, you know, and they hit their eye, and it's like, it's like, no, we we get like that, don't we? No, no, it's it's fine. I, I can do it. And we make a mess of things. We need him. And maybe, maybe this week for you, it's Lord, help me. Help me. Maybe it's just a simple prayer like that. Like the Samaritan woman, who again, not a Jew, right? I'm reminded of her. And finally, Jesus gets down to the heart of the matter with her. She plays games with him and then gets down to the heart of the matter. Let's stop the game playing. When you're dealing with God, it's not a game where, okay, but God, notice, I did all these things, so, so you're going to do this, right? It's not the way it works with him. He doesn't play the games that we, that works with people all the time, right? Hey, man, I did all this stuff for you, and we feel bad about, you can't say that to God and it mean anything. 
He is gracious without our help. (laughs) He is gracious without our works. And we, like this woman, must accept our position. She doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm one of the children, right? She accepts this puppy language that Jesus gives, and, here's, and she comes back with one of the greatest responses in all of the Bible. Just let's read it again. Yes, Lord. She agrees with him, see? Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You see, Israel was the table, and God had set the table for them, but not just for them. They were told to go and welcome everybody in from the highways and the byways, from the north, south, east, and west, the richest to the poorest. Who would come? Who would come? And instead, they stuffed the table up with themselves and tried to sit there alone as if they were the chosen people for themselves. No, as the old saying goes, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Nothing about the Jews was unique. They're like the most basic kind of people in all of the world, in the ancient world. That's the point. God calls regular people, not the elitist, not the smartest. Instead, he calls the weak, the ones that are willing to listen. And he takes that weakness and makes it his strength in the world. He takes what seems as if it's foolishness, and shows up the wise. This woman's persistence, this woman's great faith, leads Jesus to comment, woman, what great faith you have. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Oh, praise be to God. What kind of faith do we have? You see, God is calling us to both build walls in our life and bridges. The law acted like a wall. Israel was a wall. It was one nation among many. But the walls, even of this room, are not just meant to keep people in or out, but to welcome people in. Just like the ark before it, The walls had to be built for salvation to come. But the door was open. There was a bridge to get in. And all were welcome. And the ark of God is the church. We talked about that last week. The ship, the boat is the church moving through troubled waters. And we that are in the boat, you right here in this very room, it is not just for us, but to welcome others in. We need walls for definition. We need bridges for connection. We have to have both. And the cross, is it not the clearest bridge we have? Jesus, with his arms wide open for all to see. So much so that a Roman dog, Gentile, repents right at the cross. You see, Jesus is the only way. That's exclusive. And yet, it has led to the most inclusive faith 
the world has ever seen. In other words, Christianity today is the most inclusive faith of any faith or religion or religious movement. What I mean by that further is that this thing we call Christianity is made up of, let's just move through the geographic of the world, Australians, Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese, Indians, Africans, Americans, both South and North. If somebody's working in Antarctica, Antarcticans, right? What we mean is this, all races, all peoples, all nations have now become Christians. There is not another faith that can say that. Do you know that? Not, not any of them. Not Islam? You say, well, no, no. Now, Hinduism, you know, they're, they're very open and stuff. Right, they're very open. Hinduism's almost anything, and yet notice the limited amounts of people who have come in. It's interesting, isn't it? Very limited. It's, it's 90% Indian. Not Christianity. Christianity is not a white religion. It's not a British religion. It's not a Western religion. Get that out of your head. It's the most inclusive religion because of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, a Jewish man who walked among us 2,000 years ago. So when the church sets up walls and says no, not beyond here, that's a good thing. It's that kind of exclusive faith that will lead the world to our door to welcome them in. But mark my words, as soon as we close the door and think we're the ones who have God's favor only, he will blow that whole wall down, the whole temple away. He'll do away with it because his grace will not be stopped. We were elected to reach the whole world. We were given light to be a light to the nations. We were blessed to bless others. We were saved to serve. So brothers and sisters, if you're saved, go out and serve this community, your family, your friends and coworkers. They need the light of Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.